episode number 61, Michelle Cutler. Welcome back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I am, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz, and this time I have an interview with composer and sound designer Michelle Cutler. Michelle and I met at her house in Vancouver in December 2018 to discuss her remarkable career as a composer that was born out of her acting training at UBC and led her eventually to study music composition at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts in 2017. She's been nominated for several Jesse Awards and is a mainstay of the Vancouver theater scene. I hope that you are continuing to weather these tough times as theaters are shut down. And we are in stasis, waiting to return to making art for a live audience. Please, if you can, consider giving to the Actors Fund of Canada at afchelps.org. Don't forget that our new limited series on the Tuttle Blocks YouTube channel every Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific. This past week, we had another great discussion with video and projection designers, and you have uh, no doubt found them in your feed. Uh, we are taking a week off while I move, and uh, we'll be back again the first week of June. And once again, I will not be charging the wonderful supporters at Patreon.com while we all pause, but I thank you for all your past and future support. Now, here's my interview with composer and sound designer, Michelle Cutler. Michelle Cutler is a composer, sound designer, actor, musician based in Vancouver, um, British Columbia, if you didn't know where Vancouver was. (laughs) Silly people, um, and she has been working for the last uh, eight years as a uh, as composing music for theater, and has recently returned from New York, where she did a graduate work uh, a graduate work in musical theater composition. Uh, Michelle, welcome to the title block. Thank you. We so got happy th- to be here. Oh, it's awesome. We got through it. <laughs> yes, the ball is rolling. Yeah. So, how did you find your way into theater? Anyways, where you were you were a musician first? Is this correct? I was I was a musician first. I did classical piano for my whole kind of youth and um, teenagehood and I did you know Royal Conservatory and all that kind of stuff Um, and I was like pretty serious but not super concert level serious Um, but I also did a lot of theater as a kid I actually um, homeschooled until I was 12 and the homeschooling community here especially back then um, well I don't know now how it is now but the, the parents were really engaged in uh, creating opportunities for us to do things like theater. And, you know, we were a bunch of weird little, you know, creative kids. And uh, we would do things sim- similar to, um, like, Bard on the Beach here has a young Shakespeareans program, you know, summer programs where they have actors for two weeks and you put on a little play. And they did a, we did a lot of stuff like that um, through Bard on the Beach and also through organize, organized things um, with the homeschooling community. And I was just really, I just really liked it. I don't know. It was just, it was sort of a part of, part of my world. Um, and so throughout my, you know, high school, I was teaching piano and I was really in that, but I also was in the musical and, um, really enjoyed that kind of stuff as well. And when I graduated, I really was more interested in performing. So I ended up, uh, going to UBC and taking the 
BFA in acting there, which is a three-year conservatory program. Um, but when I was in my second year of the acting program, I was part of a production of Romeo and Juliet that was uh, in the TELUS Theater at, at uh, the Chan Center, which is this really cool space that has, um, it's sort of, I think the right or the seating is movable, but it was sort of like a three-quarter thrust kind of situation, but there's these like three levels. It's really cool. Um, and it was directed by Catriona Leger, who was a uh, MFA directing student at the time. And her vision, she had studied, I think, in Paris with Lecoq. You know, she was she knows a lot about Buffon. And so the vision was kind of like that. And um, she knew I was a musician, and she said, can you learn accordion? And I said, absolutely, I will learn accordion. <laughs> and um, so I decided to learn accordion, and she had a vision for me as sort of... Um, you know, if the MC of the cabaret kind of kind of thing, and because of that, there was live music. It was all live music. With um, I had a particularly musical class. Um, there was a lot of talent there in terms of my fellow actors, and so Patrick Penafather, who was the music director composer that was hired for the project, basically said to me, um, "However much ownership you want to take of the project, go ahead and take it." And I really sort of took it and ran with it. And that was my very first time writing music at all. And it was just, I had never really cared for the idea of writing songs. But once it was part of telling a story, I suddenly felt like super inspired. And so I spent the whole rehearsal period coming up with themes and figuring out and actually basically music directing my classmates who were really willing to take my direction and um it was really yeah it was really exciting so that was my first time ever really getting into that scene of writing music for theater right i one of the things that i uh, i hear from i didn't do conservatory when i was uh younger but i the, the the things i hear from my friends who've done especially many years of it they find it difficult to improvise or to work off of the music like just uh um uh, to not like to to play by ear, for example. But mm -hmm. did you find that that was that the conservatory method was uh, was getting in the way, or had you gone long and long enough down that road to understand? Like I would say, I'm not the best improviser. I'm not I'm not someone who super learns by ear. I'm better at notating things. Even when I write, I really sit down and notate things. But uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, there's a combination of things. I think the the thing you do learn when you're part of Royal Conservatory and you study the theory is you learn how harmony works. And so I think for me, the more the more I do it, the better I am. But at that time, for sure, it was a little more heady. It was a little more I had to sort of process it in my brain and then go through it. Um, but not certainly. I think I have like a sort of a in betweensies thing. I'm not. I'm not like um, you know a lot of people who just fully learn by ear and. Uh, it's all about how it feels. I think I'm a little more goes through my brain first. Mm -hmm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's interesting. So the the um, uh, in theater, it's a collaborative art, mm -hmm. and uh, I, you know, from my personal experience, I was never um, a single author kind of person. Like I always fed off of other people's ideas. Mm -hmm. Is this the thing that you were kind of waiting for to sort of find your compositional? Yeah, totally, chops? totally. I. I think my favorite thing about theater is working with people. Um, I just, 
love to be in dialogue with people about sort of a greater vision. And so at that time, for sure, I was like, wow, I have a purpose here. There's a story to tell. There's this team of people who are going to help me make it happen. There's this director who's sort of overseeing everything and who I can um, trust to look at everything from the outside. And uh, yeah, like there's there's something that I'm doing here. I recently wrote my first uh, chamber piece, which was... um, you know, probably the first time in on a larger scale that I'd actually sat down and just written a, a piece. It was um, for a five-piece ensemble. And I think at this point now, I can say um, that that was really satisfying in a different way. But it also, once again, had these constraints of the five instruments that I was writing for and actually the players that I knew. And there was um, an overarching theme to the sh- to the show as well. So, yeah, it definitely was very different than... Um, I never was a teenager who just like wanted to write songs. <laughs> yeah, um, that's interesting. You also struck on a couple of different things there too. The the first being this idea that taking risks is an important component of any kind of creative art. Mm-hmm. But in theater, the best the best environments within which to take those risks are ones in which you have the safety nets of people going, "Mm, that's a bit too far, or could you go farther? Or don't worry, we have a backup plan if that fails or uh, to sort of guide you along the way. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, I feel like the riskiest things that people do are like the one person show (laughs) uh, where, I mean, I mean, the best case, and everyone talks about having like needing a director, even though you've written and produced it and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, are acting in it. You need a third a third party to come in and say and look at it and give you feedback. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, in the situations that you're talking about, um, it's a it's a freeing aspect to sort of be able to make mistakes and to take risks and know that other people are going to be able to give you feedback on that. Right? Oh yeah. yeah, and Patrick was wonderful on you know he he was just um, a great mentor to have in that moment and really he was really like chill and laid back and didn't put a lot of pressure on me I think the one thing I remember him saying was just like be ready to throw it all away like don't don't feel bad don't worry expect to have to trash the things you love and then just try something new and uh and it's hard you know because there's a lot of ego involved um but yeah it was it was great to have that support and um, you know, in an, in an educational environment, there's even more support and there's a lot of people looking out for you. Um, but yeah, it felt suddenly just like so exciting to have um, this greater purpose. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the other thing I, uh, I was thinking about when you were telling that story is the idea that constraints mm-hmm. make you better. Oh, and totally. Focus you and you're not just sort of left to sort of go off on a tangent, like yeah. given all these bar- barriers within which to work and then you can actually feel freer almost. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. not go down rabbit holes that you don't need to. Oh yeah. The worst thing is, is when you're on a show and there's just, no, you could kind of do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's uh, I mean, eventually you figure it out, but uh, it's a lot easier when there's a bunch of restrictions. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, great. And so uh, you got through this um, uh, production, mm-hmm. uh, ABC, and then uh, what was your next step? You finished your BFA. Yeah, I had another year after that, and I think I played accordion in like another show in, in my final year. Uh, and then I graduated, and I was out in the world. And pretty soon after that, uh, one of my classmates, Christine Quintana, who is 
she's a wonderful actor, but she's also a playwright and a producer. And she called me up and she said, I got asked to write a 10 minute show for um, It's a Zoo Productions, which is a company that is based, they began in Vancouver, in Victoria, they're all UVic students. Um, Chelsea Haberlin uh, and Sebastian Archibald, I believe are the artistic directors. Um, and they had a, sh- uh, a little festival called Bridge Mix at the time. This was 2011. Um, and the the idea of this show was it was in a parking garage downtown. And you would go to one level of the parking garage and you'd see a 10-minute show. And you'd walk up to the next level and you'd see another show. And so Christine and I, uh, we were like, well, we let's write a musical. And because of the, the again, the restraints of we had, we were in a parking garage, so we couldn't really have any real big instruments we had no power is we decided to write about people leaving their offices at the end of the day and singing about all the things they wish they were doing instead of working and because it was you know the early stages of the like twee novelty instrument kind of scene we called it we called it park and in parked an indie rock musical for novelty instruments. And everyone was playing novelty instruments, except for one of our actors played a trombone, so there was that. But <laughs> but there was like a melodica and a ukulele, and it was very cute. And we had four, it was basically just four songs. And um, it was really fun, and we cast all our friends, and um, it was just really silly. And I think I wasn't able to be in it because I had some conflict, but um, Christine was in it and a few other people that we were friends with. Um, and then the festival ended and people really liked it. And then we were like, oh, that's like funny. And there's a festival here, um, called, it's now called Revolver, but it was called Neanderthal at the time. It's a base of the culture. This is a thing to look up because I forget the name of the producing company. Oh, that's okay. We'll look it up. It'll be in the show <laughs> yeah. notes for yeah. people to Um, to. but so this is a, it's a great festival because it's sort of a step up from fringe is what I'd say. Like it is curated, but it is for emerging companies to um, be able to have chances to do their, uh, put on shows with a little bit of a few resources. So it's at the Kulch. Um We were in the historic theater, which is their sort of 200 seat venue in Vancouver and you have like you know three hours of tech or something and but you have to strike your set at the end so it's sort of sort of like fringe but it's a little bit more um and so we of course we applied and we got in and they were like okay we got to write this show now (laughs) so then we expanded this show from a 10 minute thing into like a a 60 minute thing and we called it we renamed it stationary recessionary musical and this show was basically about people working in an office and really just the millennial thing of growing up being told you can accomplish anything and you can be anything, but really the realities of that not being totally true. And um, we made it more of a show. You know, we had book scenes now and uh, it was very, the conceit of like how the music operated was very specific. It wasn't like, uh, some musicals where the songs are extensions of the scenes. So all the songs were basically fantasy numbers. So it went from a book scene into what I wish I could be doing or, you know, my inner thoughts. Um, and again, all the actors played instruments. And I was in the show now. I played the boss that everyone hated. And I had, I was sitting at a desk and there's like a piano hidden under the desk. And it was like, 
very magical in that way. And I think we caught that sort of actors, actor musician thing kind of on the beginning of when that was becoming really hip. Um, and so we did the show, at, that was 2012 now, summer of 2012. And it was still like, I look back and I was like, oh, we hardly knew what we were doing, but we sort of caught a, a really specific thing that people responded to and it was funny and it was, the music was catchy and, and um, we were all just so excited. So I think people really got that from it. Um, and so that I had, I, that was one of those special projects where you're just working with all your best friends. Um, and delinquent theater is Christine and Laura McLean. They are the artistic directors of that company. So because they had this company that they had started, I think when they were both in school, we had a bit of infrastructure for, to work within. Um, so we did that show. And then, so the first time I ever sound designed was I got a call from Craig Holshue, who used to be arti the artistic director at Theater Les Seizièmes. He doesn't work there anymore. I think he works for the Canada Council now. Um, but he called me up and he was like, hey, have you ever sound designed? And I was like, no, but I will say yes. <laughs> and um, it, was, it was really a great opportunity. It was this TYA show. It was a touring show for uh, like teens. And um, the cool thing about it was that one character in the show was like a teenage boy who writes music. And there were all these very specific descriptions of the, kind, of the music that he's writing. Because he's talking to the girl about, he's like, yeah, so this instrument represents like this and this and so it was there's all these specific cues to how the music should sound and it's supposed to be recorded by a teenage boy in his basement so it like can count sound kind of shitty and so it was a great opportunity for me as someone who had written music but not really ever recorded any music and I like knew how to use QLab because someone had once taught me so I sort of knew how to use QLab but that was kind of it um, but that company is great. They've, I think they've given starts to some, a lot of prominent designers here. And the fact that they saw that within you as well and say, you know, Michelle can, she'll be able to pull, like we can figure out the technical yeah. bits yeah. and want to have her a kind of artistic uh, approach to this. Yeah, I her. really appreciated the, that. And, and like, it was really relaxed because, you know, in the end there were some technical things that I think I just didn't figure out at the time. Um, but they didn't. You know, nobody got mad. They just embraced it, and and it was really, yeah. So that was um, really great, and I really I'm very grateful for them for taking that that risk and and allowing me to jump in and try. Yeah. Well, um, uh, Rob Sondergaard and I had a conversation uh, yesterday, but it'll be the last episode um, about whether or not technicians like like whether or not you have to come out of a technical position in order to become a designer or mm -hmm. whether you can enter solely as a um from an artistic kind of yeah it's i mean that's well. a big question for sound mm -hmm. because sound design in canada is not really sound design right it's it's so sound design really is system design it's where speakers are put and it's 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 a lot more to do with speaker placement and how to make things sound Right, and so if you're working in a musical, sound design for a musical is more close to what sound design actually is, right? And it's mixing and it's microphones and all that. Sound design, in terms of how it's used in Canadian theater, is basically more to do with scoring and composition, sometimes musical direction, uh, programming. Like, it's not even really sound design. And 
I mean, I absolutely came from a creative side and I've now learned, I'm like very good at QLab and I'm very good with logic and working with, you know, creating, um, I use a lot of MIDI cause there's never any money to record anything. Um, but I'm not like super great with working at a console. Um, and I think I don't want to diminish how important that is because I think it is important that people, that designers learn about these things. But with sound, it's just particularly like there's too many things encapsulated in what sound design is for someone to just be good at everything. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I know that Richard and I think Michael Laird and I talked about this as well, um, that we need to force companies to make a decision about what you're hiring somebody for. Oh my God. Yeah. And if you're compo- if you're hiring someone as a composer and, uh, uh, creator, mm-hmm. then that's not the same thing as a system designer or a sound designer and that yeah. you can, those are two different jobs mm-hmm. and you should. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that what I've learned is that every design discipline has things that we're expected to do that aren't really our job. Mm-hmm. Um, with sound, it's yeah, exactly what, like what you're saying, right? There's a lot of, I mean, it's not only composer, it's engineer and, you know, like producer and, Music, because you're supposed to be able to play everything too. So there's, um, there's a lot of expectations that are just straight up not sound design at all. But the other, on the other side of that, um, pretty much everywhere I work, unless it's um, sort of you're building a venue out of nothing, there's a there's a house technician that's doing that. Like I'm not allowed to touch the console, right? So that's um, it works for me because there's. I mean, usually as long as the sound technician knows what they're doing, there's another person there that is better equipped and like actually doing the job that I'm not allowed to do. Yeah, it is funny. Like in a, using lighting as an analogy, I would never operate the console or program it for a right. production. Um, but there's so much subtlety involved in sound mixing right. that I can see where the crossover would occur. Yeah, well, um, I, I would never like sit there while a, a technician is programming my QLab file. Right. And so what I do is I screen share with the show computer and I sit in the house and I just do it. And certain houses, um, I think technically if there's one, if there's one technician there, they have to stop doing lighting while I do that because they're so, but most places don't enforce that super strongly. Um, so yeah, because of the way QLab works, um, I find that, there's no way I could sit there and like tell someone to, you know, it's all about <laughs> how it feels. Um, and certainly, yeah, there's, there's just endless things with sound, right? You can just always fuss with it forever. Yeah. And I, and I think you're right about like the technology has been changing. Even in the last five years, the technology has changed so much that mm-hmm. I think you're, it's unfair to expect um, a designer to be, to have know every single in and out of whatever the whatever that theater has decided to to buy to support yeah the audio, well right? and I think also it's different with, than lighting in the way that every console is or can be very very different um, and I mean unfair or not it's just unrealistic um, and it does because the expectations are in this country because there just isn't the money. Um, that sound designers are doing a lot of different jobs. I think that what we've come up with is that we have the house technician who knows their system well and they provide support. 
And I haven't come up against that being too much of a problem. I think that it depends, like with any designer, right? Like if you are going to make yourself crazy with every detail that probably nobody but you will notice, (laughs) then it can be frustrating. But I think that I try to actually tamper my expectations with, okay, how much is, how much are people notice? How much am I getting paid? You know, how much am I going to really like, you know, sometimes you just got to leave it and say, this is the situation I'm in and I'm doing my best and everyone's doing their best. Yeah. And that's, that's not uncommon for, for all the design disciplines. Absolutely. Like we mm-hmm. all temper our, or, or shape our work based on all of those factors. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about a lot, and I don't know if this is uh, true for you. Um, um, any, mentors besides maybe pen and father at the beginning because mm-hmm. uh, it sounds like you're working a lot with your cohort and then getting a reputation and then getting asked to do things by other people like is is was yeah, anybody I mean, you're working with that was yeah i mean there's a there's a fair there's a few directors here that i've you know worked with a few times and really uh like steven drover who i worked with at rumble i worked at in their office for two years mm-hmm. um and then have designed for him a few times. It's just, you know, he's a, he's been a great friend and a great uh, mentor in terms of a, a more senior artist than me. And I learned a lot about the the ecology of Canada and Canadian theater when I was working there and what was sort of the bigger picture of things. Working at Progress Lab, um, actually, which is just, you can even see it from this window. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, working in that, it's... At the time, it was we were Rumble New World Electric Company and Boca del Lupo, and Boca I think has now moved out. They they're now based in Granville Island, um, but just working in that building and being around all those really fantastic artists. And so at the time, it was Stephen Drover and Becky Lowe um, were she was the GM I think at the time, and it was like all we did all day was sit and talk about theater, and then you go next door to New World and then they talk about theater and you go, you know, and so it was an amazing chance to actually get a sense of what was happening outside of just my world of students and um, people who had been in the industry for longer and on a larger scale than just, you know, me and my friends. So that was, yeah, that was a great opportunity. I would think that the, um, the arts admin jobs are really coveted here. <laughs> if you can get into one of those admin jobs and just be on the inside and get paid a bit and, uh, you know, learn about what's, what's really going on. And then, you know, you get to, I got to be readers at a reader at auditions and I got to hear the conversations that people talk about when they're considering who to hire and, you know, beyond anything, it's about who's like a nice person to be around. I really, that was a great lesson. I feel like every time I've ever, done any sort of mentorship I've just been like just be nice just be cool like be a human you can even be not as good as another person but be be kind and be good to work with and show up and answer your emails <laughs> exactly that's awesome um so uh let's talk about some more of the work what, what was your next like if you could um choose like the next kind of important thing that you did or or that that you learned a bunch on like like what was the next kind of Envelope pushing yeah, so work I'm that you did. Here at my list. So that show, Statu Quo, was the mm-hmm. show that I did mm. at first with um, Says Yum. And I guess I'm looking... Oh, yeah. So before that, there was... I did a little bit of acting. I did... Um, uh, oh, flop was I went uh, with Anton Lipovetsky, who's actually my cousin, who's an actor and a, a writer here. And we went to um, the Edmonton Fringe and I accompanied him. And that was really fun, too. So um, I'd say the next... Oh, Killer Joe was a really cool project. Um so it's a zoo again, the same guys that uh, 
started us off with stationery. Um, they do a lot of site-specific work and very immersive uh, in-your-face stuff. So they did the show uh, Killer Joe, which is a Tracy Let's Play, which is very dark. It's about like a this family in the American South and they hire a guy to kill the mother. It's very, like, there's lots of nudity and violence. It's very grotesque. Um, and the setting of it is in a, a trailer or a, a mobile home. And what they did was they actually, uh, they got, like, a contain, uh, like, a portable, like, you know, in high school, you have, like, a portable. Okay. Um, and inside of that built an extremely detailed set of inside of this um, portable home and they had it was like 20 people or something could fit inside of the space and um, so you're there's like naked people like right there right next to you there's, it, it was very um, it was cool and, and that was the first time I got to say okay like where are we gonna put the speakers and there's like rain that's outside and rain that's inside and where are we gonna and I kind of had no idea but I was like well I think that when the door opens there should be a speaker behind it and um, that was really cool because that was definitely sound design that was not composition I didn't write anything for it but it was a lot about yeah atmospheric stuff and how does it fit in and um radio stuff and things that were really in the context of something that's super super realistic um and Chelsea Haberlin uh who I've worked with a lot since then she's just fantastic she's um she has very very strong visions for what she wants and what she imagines but also really trusts her designers so that was um, that was a really cool project, uh, and just totally different and totally able to just be like, well, here we are. And I think I just like I knew QLab so basically at the time that there was like there was a few things that I just didn't even know how to make work. And it's the kind of thing where you're in tech and it's not working, and you're like, oh my god, I don't know how to work it. And this, the the TD they've hired doesn't really know what sounds. So like, oh god. So it was a lot of chaos like that, but um, it was great, and it it ended up being just a hugely successful show. I think it won the, like the production Jesse that year. Um, that's, yeah. that's terrific. Uh, uh, how did you approach the atmospheric design? Like, um, when you're composing, uh, especially with, um, modern, um, DAWs and the, and the other, like you can mm -hmm. plug in anything and the, and the samples now are so incredible. You can create whole orchestras Yeah, and uh, like people will, you have to have an ear to sort of listen, like to hear the difference. Mm -hmm. but when we're talking about atmospheric sounds, a lot of it is re maybe recorded, maybe mm -hmm. there's sound effects libraries. Like where do you pull all that stuff from? I have, and, a, I have a pretty good library um, that has, I mean, I got a lot of rain. I got a lot of wind. Uh, and I haven't like really invested in new library since I started out, but I got like a really good one right when I started. Um, and I find that, yeah, it's just a bunch of listening and trying. And sometimes I go to YouTube and sometimes, you know, I, I was, I heard, I remember Richard was talking about this on the other episode. I was heard and he was talking about how, you know, the real, real, real sounds sometimes don't actually sound like what you want them to because uh, it's so true. Like a car driving could sound the same as wind could sound the same, you know? So sometimes it's about what actually will trigger us in our mind as opposed to what actually is realistic. I found that with school bells because there's often you were doing like a TYA show and there's a school bell. Mm -hmm. But even when I was in high school, it's like they don't use those anymore. They use these weird electronic dings, mm -hmm. but that's not going to cue our audience to knowing what the hell is happening. So sometimes it's about that. Yeah. 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 Having a cultural understanding of what, of meaning, what mm -hmm. the audience 
assigns meaning to as part of the job, right? Yeah, totally. Uh, and then again, that goes across all disciplines as well. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you push the envelope, you got through um, uh, your sort of first environmental kind of design, mm-hmm. uh, and you continue doing that. Uh, anything, what was the next kind of big show? When, was you, when did you move outside of the sort of small stuff? trying to look for a larger like i haven't honestly this since being back from new york is when i've gone Mm. to like working at the arts club and working at bard Mm -hmm. um i was working for mid-sized uh i guess here in vancouver there's a lot of mid-sized companies that i guess sometimes count as indie but they're you know sort of in between um yeah so i think for that time i was doing uh, like I worked for, I worked actually in the office at Rumble Theater for a few years and I did, designed a couple of shows with them. I continued working with Sizyam. I did a little bit of more musical directing and accompaniment. I went and worked at Caravan Farm, which was great for a couple summers. Tell me about that because this is kind of, uh, like there's a romantic kind of yeah. ideal of Caravan and I don't know, and it's everybody in the West has this great kind of memory of it and I don't yeah. know much about it. Tell me about what it's like to work there. And Caravan is like, it's like the dream gig, right? Because um, I ended up going there the first time I went was as as a musician, as a, I was playing accordion in the band. Um, and Caravan, at least my experience now, they actually, um, Courtney Doby was the artistic director there at the time and she's now uh, come back to Vancouver. So I haven't worked with, I think, Estelle, who's the new I think she was the former and now she's back. Um, but at the time when I worked, it was always the kind of thing, at least with me, where like you sort of email Courtney and say like, hey, I'm a, I am play accordion and I want to come to Caravan. And you don't hear for a while. And then suddenly she's like, here's a job. <laughs> um, and that, so I played accordion in the show. It was called The Tragical Comedy of Punch and Judy. And it was written by Jacob Richmond, who wrote Ride the Cyclone, which... Um, was this is this fantastic show out of Victoria that uh, actually was in New? I saw it in New York when it came to play off Broadway in New York. Yeah, it played. I saw. Uh, I didn't see it in Toronto. I missed it in Toronto, but it, it was a huge hit at Pass Mariah, and then that was just before it went to New York. And yeah. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this was Jacob Richmond, and then Hank Pine wrote the music, who's a, a Victoria-based musician as well. And it was this wacky show. Oh my god, I couldn't like. So it was there was a Punch and Judy puppet thing, but it was also. Oedipus Rex and it was like there was a Punch and Judy there and they all came to life the puppets and then Oedipus Rex comes in and then he takes Judy he steals Judy and Judy runs off with Oedipus Rex and like that's like act one and then act two is a rock opera of Oedipus Rex and it was just like so the density of like like historical and literary references that was within this show was just like wild (laughs) Um, and it was it's I mean working caravan is great so you put up when you're a a young one you get you have to sleep in a tent Mm -hmm. so I had the I got to sleep in a I just sleep in a tent for the first three weeks while the designers were still around and when they left I got a cabin I got this like crazy cabin up on the hill um and so when you're in rehearsal you like go there you get up in the morning you rehearse it's like so hot Mm -hmm. and I'm you know I'm from Vancouver so like anything above like 25 I'm like I can't handle um, and Courtney, uh, the director was like very pregnant at the time. And I remember she was just like spray water on herself and just, we would all just like be spraying water all over ourselves, trying to find shade. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you rehearse all day and then there's, there's amazing food. I'm sure everyone talks about the food, right? Uh, and then you just hang out at night and then you do it again. And then once the show opens, 
it becomes kind of quieter because all the designers leave and you just kind of hang out all day and maybe you go into town and then you do a show and then you hang out. It's very, it's like a, a really fun kind of vacation. Um, yeah, so it was great. And I was in this little band. It was me and a trumpet player and a drummer who were both from Victoria and both knew each other. So it was just like this fun, bizarre project. And so, uh, yeah, I did that that summer and that was my first time sort of going away and doing a show. And I went back, I think the next year, um, to music direct. So I wasn't in the show. And that was also, that was pretty sweet because I got to just be there for three weeks and not have to be in the show and then just kind of leave. <laughs> and that was the summer right before New York, actually. That was, I guess, 2015. Well, that's great. Why don't we go to New York then? You, um, It's quite, I think, brave to... Uh, it sounds like things were going well. Like you're getting composition mm-hmm. gigs, you're getting sound designer gigs, you're working in medium to larger size theaters, and you're building this repertoire. Uh, and then you decide to leave the country, basically, and go to New York yeah. to Tisch to do this musical uh, theater composition graduate degree. How did yeah, that come about? Was, yeah, you know, it's funny. I found that I find sometimes in my life I've just been like, well, I just want to do something different. Um, but it was hard. It was, it was great because I had known of this program because it's sort of very specifically the only one like this, at least in North America. Um, and I think what I was just like, well, I just, I, I have never lived anywhere else and I wanted to go and have a new experience and I applied and I got in, but it was tough because I realized at that point I was like probably on the verge of working with the arts club, which is, you know, like, you know, okay. And working the arts club, it feels like a very big deal when you're a younger designer. Um, and it was, it was for sure, I felt the pain of like turning down some opportunities. Um, but it was very easy to say, you know, like it's all going to be here when I get back. Um, yeah, so, uh, and it was, it was actually, I think I found, so stationary, like had been going, trucking along this whole time, right? From 2012, we did it at Neanderthal. 2013, we did a run at Presentation House in North Vancouver. Um, and then we got this opportunity to go to Barrie, to go to Takas Free Theater, and then to run it, have an actual run at the Cult in their season. Um, and that final run happened in 2015 in the spring, in April. And uh, that was like crazy. I think we had two two of our, our guys like drove the set out to Barrie and then back again. It was like not feasible, I don't think. Christine, who was in it and wrote it and also was producing it, like I think she almost died from the amount of producing stress that was on that but we did it and it was like really fun and then we did it here at the culture and then I got into NYU and I was like oh my god I'm gonna leave all this and I'm here I'm you know working with my best friends and it's so amazing but um yeah it was it was it was cool like so the program at NYU um talk about collaboration it's all collaborative so it's half of the class is composers and half are book writer lyricists so you're always in collaboration all the time um so in your first year, it's like songwriting assignments. You're paired up with a different person every week and you have to write a song and then there's lab components and then you sit and everyone critiques it and talks about it and then you kind of do a rewrite and that kind of style. Um, and then in addition to that, there is tutorials and other optional things. Um, and then in your second year, uh, you have one, one thesis partner for the whole year and, and you write a 90-minute musical and there's a reading with equity actors and a director and a music stand reading and then that's it yeah 
Um, that's remarkable. I f- it feel like uh, like if I if I was to think about a program to get that kind of experience, that's exactly what I would do. Like mm-hmm. you would just keep writing, and you're collaborating, but you keep doing like. What did you, were you assigned styles to write in, or was yeah. it? Um, it was so like the first very first one you do is like an AABA song, right? So it's it was you know a lot about song form, and then in our our music tutorials there would be more style specific kinds of things. The interesting thing was like there were a fair number of people in my class that had composition undergrads. So I felt kind of like the like one who was coming at it from with like a lot less technical training. Uh, and so I was kind of like, Oh, I don't know like as much about jazz theory as this person does, but it was a lot less about that kind of stuff and like really technical form. Although there was that from certain, especially certain music professors and a lot more about storytelling and about, a lot about lyric writing, which is sort of a very underappreciated mm-hmm. kind of skill, uh, which is absolutely a very particular kind of discipline that, yeah. Uh, I'm curious about the co- the, uh, the collaborative, um, uh, like the collaboration with a lyricist. Like, how do you guys share ideas? How do you, who, lead, who takes the lead? Does it change depending yeah, on the idea? And- it's a very, it can vary depending on who you're working with. I found that in my experience, the best thing that the thing I like is to get a little something from my lyricist, maybe a verse, uh, and to then go away and create something and then come back to it. And uh, with me and Christine's relationship, which was sort of just like, we had no idea what we were doing. It was more like we didn't actually work in the room together all that much. Um, she would give me some stuff. I would come up with some. Sometimes I would write dummy lyrics and maybe a couple of them would stick. Um and then eventually sort of come to things. And I'm certainly not shy to say, hey, I don't, I don't think this quite fits or I don't really like this word. And I'm happy if someone says, hey, like, can this change? I don't know about this, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's unique and sometimes, sometimes very fraught. Right. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, well, that's really interesting. And then uh, when you finished that, so what was the, tell me about your thesis project. Your My thesis year. project was called The Last Good One, and it was a reimagining of the Sodom and Gomorrah story, which was, it was a funny thing. I, so my thesis partner um, was a person, so the, the process of assigning thesis partner is kind of funny. So in your first year, you are, you end up having worked with everybody on the other side, like by the end of the year. And then in sort of April-ish of the first year, you have to have conversations with like 10 people on the other side. And say like, hey, what would we write about? How would we work together? And just sort of informal. And then you have to write this document where you rank everybody and you say like, this is who I want to work with. This is why. And then the professors take that away and they sort of do their best and then they pair you up with somebody. So some people are like, end up really happy and some people are not so happy. (laughs) Um, And so my collaborator was someone who I liked and we got along and it was fine. I, I don't think that aesthetically we're like super aligned he's very he's like really engaged in the new musical theater sort of joe iconis world of new york um but we wrote this show which was about this this man from brooklyn who like these angels come from heaven they say you have to go to find one good person in new york or else the city's going to be destroyed and we wrote this show about it and it was kind of silly and and it was a great exercise in 
creating a show with a person like with a specific timeline and so basically you have like a lab every every week with your advising team which is three people and you bring in something and they sort of talk about it and you have a lot of freedom in that second year to sort of just write um so I think I learned a lot about like it was one of those chances where I, I wrote a lot of styles that maybe I wouldn't but I learned how to write like you know a Broadway swing kind of thing and stuff that is a little more contemporary musical theater a little more technically like fancy um and in the end like it was fine I don't think it was a particularly like a lot of people try to take their thesis shows and do something with them um and sometimes that works out but it was more of a, a learning exercise for me, I think that, and I still sometimes pull stuff that I like wrote for that and I, you know, use them, use them again here. I'm curious about how you developed your own taste or style. Like, uh, is this, is this, um, set around the orchid, like the, uh, the instrumental choices you make? Is it uh, particular th- themes or, or musical styles or is it, tempo texture like how do you yeah i mean like i think the the benefit of of writing music for theater is that there's always something else there too um like i remember they said someone said like the music you listen to when you're like 14 is the music that you'll always write so i think i sometimes always end up writing something that sounds sort of like 2000s alt rock (laughs) (laughs) you know lannis is always alive within me um but you know, I don't really know. I ha- I guess, you know, I have a bit of the classical understanding. Uh, the music that I wrote for that first R&J was very, like, sort of Kurt Vile, uh, sort of, you know, silly. Like, I actually recently did a show called Titus Buffonius with Rumble Theater, written by Colleen Murphy, which was um, another Buffon piece that was but with Titus Andronicus as sort of the framework for it. And it was another very similar, like Tom Waits, just like gross kind of German music, which I somehow have a a real affinity for. Um, So I find that I have, for sure, I think all composers have their things they're going to go back to and their things that are easy. And I think it's pretty easy for me to like write a catchy power ballad. Um, but, you know, with Cezanne, because, I don't know, they have this, like, delicate French way. I think I wrote a lot of really pretty piano music for them. Um, and I'm trying to look. So, like, you know, um, I don't, yeah, it's it's an interesting question. And I feel like it's whatever things I tend to go to hopefully gets um, tempered by the, the needs of the show. And so, I mean, and working with MIDI and working with Logic, there's also like certain patches that sound good and certain patches that don't. And um, there's all these weird, these technical limitations about what's feasible and what actually can you can make happen. And um, I didn't used to be very good at like creating, you know, uh, really moving dance music, but like, you know, with moving in terms of like with a beat. But uh, I'm like, have gotten better at, at, at that kind of stuff so yeah. that's interesting uh, okay let's just go talk uh in the last like 15 minutes here talk about um a bit more about your process mm-hmm. uh, i'm curious about once you um have come up with an idea you've met with the lyricist you, you have a you have constraints like you know the story you're writing mm-hmm. um how do you go back and edit how do you like how do you approach 
um, how do you how do you make it better? I'm, I'm, I've never yeah. composed anything, so I don't know how this works. But yeah, well, I mean, I guess I can talk about composing for theater for like as a sound designer. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's sort of there's a few different situations, right? So this summer I, I worked on Liz Estrada with Bard on the Beach, and uh, with Lois Anderson, who um, it was a it was a crazy piece because it was a new adaptation of Liz Estrada, um, that was all. Because you know, never you, no one ever gets time to workshop anything. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of being written and workshopped as we were rehearsing it. And I was fortunate to be able to be in the show on stage playing piano. So it meant that there was more flexibility uh, because stuff was happening. Like we didn't have to re-record anything because I was just doing it. So um, there was one, maybe one piece that I really wrote beforehand, and a lot of that is like those conversations are emailing the director and back and forth and hearing notes and then going back and forth about that. And I just, I have these memories of when I did that first show, it says, yeah. And the first time I emailed something to the director and like, I was so stressed about it. I was so afraid. Uh, Cause you're, you're sort of in that moment where you're waiting to hear, is it okay? Is it not okay? Um, so I think that, and working with directors, especially most directors don't have super deep knowledge of music. Um, so it's about interpreting what they're saying if if they work with imagery or they work with reference music or whatever and trying to understand what that is, trying to filter that to what's actually happening musically and uh, then coming up with new drafts, basically. And then when we were in rehearsal, for the underscoring, because it was just me and I was using um, main stage, which is, it's like a MIDI, it's a MIDI performance thing. So you have your computer, your keyboard plugged into the computer and then you can just change patches, basically. So um, I was able, you know, you come up with some themes and you just try to... That, that This was a situation where it was more improvising and more just trying to create moods on stage. And it was all responding live. And with the song, songs, especially because there were like, I think, nine women in the cast and we had to like they had to learn the material. So um, you can't just make changes on the fly because they have to rehearse it and integrate it and all that stuff. So it really is... I think the more you can see it, the more I can see it in context, the more I can then go and make it better and tweak it and mess with it. Um, if it's not live, I think, you know, the you just try to get the timings as much as possible, try to see it in context as early as possible, and then just keep on going back and, and looking at it and looking at what is the moment it's coming out of, what is the moment it's going into. Sometimes it might feel really wrong but the actual change is quite small that needs to happen um and then when you're in tech it's also about how does it operate with the lights and how does it operate with the actors i think that i've gotten a lot better at saying hey i need to tell the actors that for this sound cue to work they actually have to do this um or the lights need to do this and it's not going to work otherwise and that you know the ability to actually say that comes with time yeah um, excellent. Um, now, does every uh, every sound designer does not need to be a composer? Uh, no, nope. I imagine depends on the work you're getting. Um, but uh, what do you think? Like, if someone's thinking about sound design, um, what do you think they need to focus on? Um, like, so in terms of the realities of working here, I think if you're a sound designer who's not a composer, straight up not a composer, then you want to just be, you do have to learn more about the technical sides of things. 
because they there are not so often shows that come up where there's really, really no music. Recently, I did a show with Pi Theater called Here, mm-hmm. um, and it's spelled H-I-R, mm-hmm. and that design was all, it was all, there was like an air conditioner that was featured, and, and we're in the annex um, at the Orpheum space, so the, 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 the space is very, very dead, mm-hmm. which was great because it was all based on like basically white noise that played for like an hour, and then it comes out at a specific time. And that was a design that was very much a sound design. It was like, you know, car, uh, one car and then idling for like 15 minutes and that kind of thing. And that's really satisfying and great, but that kind of stuff doesn't come up that often. So um, I think in terms of what's realistic, um, that if you are not a composer, then become as technically adept as you can. And if you are a composer, get better at being a composer because I've done a fair bit of mentoring and speaking with young designers and sound designers in the last year or so. And I think the thing that comes up is that it's just like, there's a lot of years and years of training that comes into what people expect from a sound designer now, because I have whatever my master's degree and my eight years of working, but then I have 15 years of piano and music theory behind that. And so it's pretty hard if you want to come up as a composer, um, you can say, okay, well, you're, I can play guitar and I can sort of play a bunch of instruments, but I can't read music. And I said, well, you have to learn how to read music and you have to learn how to notate and you have to learn how to music direct because it's all just part of it. It's, and it's not great that that's the expectation here, but it kind of, at least for now, is. It is interesting. I never thought about that before where um, if you are, um, that there's such a, amount of work you have to do before you even start your professional training mm-hmm. um much like i guess dance like you have to dance yeah. when you know when you're five years old you have to get into especially with ballet mm-hmm. um there's a lot of there's 10 years of like just conditioning and learning that you have to do before you even start performing live yeah um which is not the same thing as other designers like yeah and i mean it's not it's not to say that you have to have like a super big classical background to do it mm-hmm. but it'll help you be faster and it'll help you have more marketable skills. And if you can run in and quickly, if there's, you know, so often I'm working on one on a show and there's like one little song there and it's not like they're going to one song that the actors have to sing. And they just assume that's on my plate, even though it's technically not on my plate. Um, And so not only do I have to be able to find the music or write the music, even if it's an existing song, you know, notate it for them. I am expected to be able to go in and play it on the piano for them and make them rehearsal tracks and rehearse with them. Um, And it's just helpful because I I can do that. And so certainly I know lots of young designers who maybe don't have all those years of training, but they're learning and they're um, because it's a skill you can learn. But uh, it's important not to forget that, at least in terms of the realities of where we are. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I didn't talk to you about is about uh, sounding the Sophia. I mean, we talked a little bit at the beginning yes. about working on um, chamber work. First of all, what was the orchestration like? Was it all strings? The or orchestration was, it- was uh, violin, viola, bass, flute, and clarinet. Uh, that was a really cool project. So... Um, a good friend of mine, Molly McKinnon, who is a violinist, she actually played violin in Stationery. That's how we sort of got connected. Um, was curating a concert with uh, Heather Beattie, who played the flute, um, 
And it was part of the Little Chamber Music Series That Could, which is an ongoing chamber series, um, which is really interesting. It's just such an interesting form. It's very different than what we, it's not going to the VSO and it's, you know, it's something really small and intimate. And so this concert was based on, or it was honoring the, I think, 100th anniversary of this ship that sank off the coast of BC um, that has sort of been largely forgotten about because it happened right at the end of the war. Um, so it was this really, I was really honored that I was invited to write um, a piece for it. And it was so cool. It was so satisfying. The one thing that I've dealt with a lot in my career is working with actor musicians or working with the limitations that I love so much also have been like a lot of limitations. <laughs> so the fact that I got to write a piece, hand it to these like excellent musicians and have them play it was just so cool. And um, I, after all the years of really everything I do is about story and it's everything I do is about moving, you know, telling something to have that all taken away at this point in my career was just so great because I could just write what I wanted and what sort of sounded cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, it was a really beautiful little concert. And so there were three pieces that were commissioned and all by women. And then they wrote some new arrangements of some period songs as well. Um, and it was so cool. And, and it's just a, the music world is, is a world that I'm not super in. Like I don't really consider myself in, you know, the classical music scene, mm -hmm. but it was really cool to get to experience that and just do something totally different. Yeah. Uh, and then finally I'm interested in, uh, because I've been talking to a lot of kind of experienced you know, 20, 30, 40 year kind of experienced yeah. designers who were, who started in the business when it was different, mm -hmm. um, coming out of the 1970s and the Canada council and the, there was a lot more money and we weren't competing with a lot of other modern media. Yeah. Um, how do you view the business? Like, uh, obviously you've got a great range of skills and mm -hmm. you're able to adapt to many different kind of forms of theater. Uh, which is a huge plus. Like somebody yeah. else who's just coming in as a sound designer, or come from the technical point of view, or maybe is just a like just a, a, a musical director, just a player, mm -hmm. um, may not have you know the kind of uh, range of opportunities that you have. Right? Um, are you optimistic? How do you feel the business is moving, and and how do you feel that you're going to have to adapt in the future to it? It's a good question. I mean, I feel reasonably optimistic in terms of. I think there's a lot of really interesting theater being created here. Um, and there's a, there's a really strong community of people who are around my generation. A lot of um, people, even from my class who are, you know, really creating interesting work and doing things well. Um, and I think, yes, of course, the realities of funding are always there. Um, I think that yes, in terms of actually, even if you are a, a straight up music director, even there's a fair amount of work if you're like a player um and i i've been involved more in in speaking to more designers of all disciplines and trying to educate producers about what is realistic to expect and how many hours we're actually putting in and all that stuff and i think that when I, when I talk to people who just say, well, it's theater, we're always going to be suffering and we're always going to have no money and it's always going to be ho horrible, I think, like, no, I don't think that's the case. Um, I think that for sure it's not like everybody who's going to come up is going to be able to work. Um, we're going to choose to keep doing it and choose the grind. You know, it's sort of 
there is limited resources, but I think that there's also a lot that keeps happening. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, live theater, you know, I don't think that every play is amazing. I don't think sometimes I'd rather watch a movie or Netflix and see theater, but, um, I think that I, I might postulate that as, as people start rejecting that and, you know, you know, want to get away from their screens and, uh, look to a thing that is, uh, not that, you know, theater's there and it's, it's, there's a lot of magic that can happen. And so I'm not like, I don't think I'm unrealistic. I think it's hard. I think it's hard, but I think that it's not dire. (laughs) On that not dire note. That's awesome. (laughs) I think we'll stop there. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. That was composer and sound designer Michelle Cutler speaking to me from her home in Vancouver in 2018. Next time, an interview with designer Connor Moore. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at TheTitleBlockCA and on Facebook.com slash Podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to TheTitleBlock at gmail.com. Don't forget that if you like the show, please support us on Patreon.com. And feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you figure out how to become an online content producer, because that seems like all that is left for now. Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on the Title Block. <laughs>